In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So God willing, today we're going to continue studying the book of Leviticus. Um, does anyone remember what we spoke about last time? So one of the major points we spoke about was the uh, consecration of the priests, how it should be done. Um, and God had given Moses the instructions uh, for the um, the details about the, the, the vestments of the priest and, and a lot of extra details in the book of Exodus. Um, but here it was more of a higher level, just speaking about, um, you know, just how the how the ordination process itself should be done. Um, what else did we talk about? Yes, good. The offerings. We spoke about the trespass offering, more information about it, and as well as more information about the peace offering that were directed specifically to the priests um, and how it should be uh, officiated. Um, now, in, in um, chapter 9, we start speaking about like the general ministry of the priesthood, right? And, and, and what is it that the priest should be, uh, should be doing? Um, so it says, uh, it came to pass on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. So what is the eighth day? Eighth day of what? That's true, yes. What, what, is this, what, what happened prior to this? Speaking about the ordination of the priests. Yes, so, the, so after the ordination of the priests, they stayed in the temple for seven days as part of the consecration. Just like now, the, the, when a priest is ordained, he stays 40 days in the monastery. Um, so he stays seven days in the, in the tabernacle, not temple, sorry, the tabernacle. Um, and so on the eighth day, which is really the first day of his service, okay, um, now Moses is going to speak to uh, Aaron and um, the other priests who are the sons of Aaron. Aaron has four sons. Um, and he said to Aaron, take for yourself a young bull as a sin offering, and a ram as a burnt offering without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. Okay, so now uh, the, 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 the priests are going to offer an offering for themselves. That's the first thing, right? So they're going to offer a sin offering, right, for themselves, which we said is about just general sinfulness, um, as well as a burnt offering for thanksgiving. Offer them to the Lord on behalf of themselves. And to the children of Israel you shall speak, saying, Take a kid of the goats as a sin offering, and a calf and a lamb, both of the first year, without blemish, as a burnt offering, also a bull and a ram as a peace offering, to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. So who is offering these? Well, the priest is officiating it, but it's for who? What does it say at the beginning? To the children of Israel. So the children of Israel, this now, because remember the, the priests now already made the sin offering and burnt offering. Now the people are going to have, offer, right, a sin offering, a burnt offering, uh, a grain offering, and a peace offering. Okay? All of those are going to be offered now. Okay? Um Yes. Wait, it said peace offering, right? Or did I make that up? Yes, peace offering. Yeah, so four offerings. So all the offerings, except for the trespass offering. Because like we said, the trespass offering was for a specific sin that was committed. So there's no specific sin here that requires some kind of restitution. This is the general sin of the people, which is for the sin offering, the burnt offering for thanksgiving, the peace offering for reconciliation to God and for one another, and the grain offering, which is a thanksgiving for God's provision and his, his, his food like that he gives to the people. Okay, So this is now on behalf of all the people. So they, so they brought what Moses commanded before the tabernacle of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. Then Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord commanded you to do. And the glory of the Lord will appear to you. And Moses said to Aaron, Go to the altar, offer your sin offering and your burnt offering, and make atonement for yourself and for the people. Offer the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord commanded. So all the people are gathered around, and uh, Moses tells Aaron to go and to make the offering. So this is the first offerings that Aaron as a priest is, is, is doing. 
kind of like the first time that the priest now in the new testament like offers the sacrifice in the liturgy it's like the first time right so aaron is going to offer the offerings on his own behalf as well as the offerings on behalf of the people aaron therefore went to the altar and killed the calf of the sin offering which was for himself then the sons of Aaron brought the blood to him, and he dipped his finger in the blood and put it on the horns of the altar and poured the blood at the base of the altar. But the fat, the kidneys, and the fatty lobe from the liver of the sin offering he burned on the altar as the Lord had commanded Moses. This is again showing, like describing everything that we already read about how these offerings are to be done. The flesh and the hide he burned with fire outside the camp. And he killed the burnt offering. So that was the sin offering for himself. Okay, now the burnt offering. He killed the burnt offering, and Aaron's sons presented to him the blood, which he sprinkled all around the altar. Then they presented the burnt offering to him with its pieces and head, and he burned them on the altar, and he washed the entrails and the legs and burned them with the burnt offering on the altar. So this is the burnt offering on behalf of Aaron and his sons, okay, to consecrate them as the priest, as for, for like, this is part of the consecration. Uh, I, I, well, after the consecration is done, this is like f on behalf of like all the offerings that they have to offer to God. And and again, as we said before, the burnt offering was completely burned. Nothing is left. Nothing is eaten. You got the offering. You're going to burn the offering. Why is it washed in between the gutting and the burning? What do you think? Well, what does washing baptism? mean? Washing is like a for purification and cleansing. So it's kind of like what you're offering to God is like pure, right? Like it's in its purest state. The interesting thing about that too is that like, because like you're right, like you could just take an animal and be like, well, we're going to burn it anyway. So just take the animal and throw it on the fire and that's it. But actually like it's like there is attention to detail that's being done in the thing that we're offering to God, even though, yes, it's all going to be burned, but it's not burned haphazardly, right? Okay. Then he brought the people's offering. So now that the offering for the priest is done. Then he brought the people's offering and took the goat, which was the sin offering for the people, and killed it and offered it for sin, like the first one. And he brought the burnt offering and offered it according to the prescribed manner. Then he brought the grain offering, took a handful of it, and burned it on the altar beside the burnt offering of the morning. Okay. The burnt sacrifice of the morning. He also killed the bull and the ram as sacrifices of peace offerings, which were for the people. And Aaron's sons presented to him the blood, which he sprinkled all around the altar, and the fat from the bull and the ram, the fatty tail, that co uh, what covers the entrails and the kidneys, and the fatty lobe attached to the liver, and they put the fat on the breasts. Then he burned the fat on the altar, but the breast and the right thigh Aaron waved as a wave offering before the Lord, as Moses had commanded. All these details we've already talked about. You guys know what the wave offering is now. Then Aaron lifted his hand toward the people, blessed them, and came down from offering the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offering. So all the offerings are done. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Okay, so when it says the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, it is not... It's not explicit saying in what way that the glory of the Lord appear. Okay, how did the glory the the glory of the Lord appear when Solomon consecrated the temple? The 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 presence of God appeared in the temple as a cloud that filled the entire temple. Okay, um, here is, could it be have been the same? Maybe. Um, but it's not saying uh, exactly in what way that the glory of the Lord appear. But this is the important part. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Why is this so important? Yes, definitely demonstrates God's approval, yes. And that he is real. What did we say about the fire of the burnt offering? About where did it come from? We, we said that there would be like a, a fire that has to perpetually stay 
lit and this this would be the beginning of yes yeah, so this is the first fire the one that came from heaven as this divine fire that was bur that burnt the offering that remained lit for generations meaning the role of the priest was always to kindle this fire and make sure the fire is continually burning because this was the same fire that would be used to burn all of the burnt offerings okay and uh, what did we say about what happened at the exile if you remember with this fire They took it with them, right? They took it with them and they hid it. And then what happened? They brought it back. But when they, br when they came to bring it back, it, was, it had turned into water. And then they came and they sprinkled the water on the offering. Nehemiah did. And when he made an offering, right, God sent fire and burned it again. So that it's, like that w it's like that water represented the fire of the original, um, of, the, of, the, of this, this original fire. So this is important because this is how God intended for the, the, the offerings to be offered. With the fire that he sent, right? Which again says something about the way that God wants the people to make these offerings. Like God has been super, super, super specific. There's a certain number of offerings. There's all these different types of offering. Each one is offered a little different. The animals are different. The, the options are different. Which parts are eaten, which parts are not, uh, which parts are burned, which parts are not. All the offerings meaning different things. And even the fire itself is not man-made fire, right? So, so God is very specific, number one. Also, he's very involved in the process. He's also like providing the means by which the offering is to be done. It's like, it's like here, like God is saying, you cannot make an offering to me unless I allow you. Like, like even us to make a sacrifice and an offering to God has to be by his permission, right? Because there is no way that anyone, even if they wanted to make an offering to God on their own, right? They would not have the divine fire. If somebody were to say, you know what, I'm going to make an altar somewhere and I'm going to make an offering to God, that like a burnt offering to God, and, and without the divine fire, that offering is going to be rejected because God is the one who requires that this fire be used, right? So it's very, uh, it's very specific, it's very official, like saying, I am granting only the sons of Aaron to be priests. I'm granting only this to be the location for the burnt offering to be offered and only this fire can be used just like now when we speak about the role of the church and the uh, like and how the the church is necessary for salvation and people say well i can go have a relationship with god on my own yeah you can right but does but but does does that is that sufficient for salvation is that sufficient does it have everything like the sacraments that are offered in the church the baptismal font that is only in the church the altar that is only in the church you know, like the priest that only serves the church. So all, all the things that are necessary for salvation, even now in the New Testament, are provided by God because all the sacraments are from God. So God brings us the sacraments and then we partake of them for the sake of our salvation. So it is not something that is man-made. Man participates, right? But it is not man-made. Even in the way, for instance, in the baptismal water, right? There is water, which is... You know, it's natural, but it's not supernatural, just regular water. But it's infused with the, with the Holy Spirit, right? Making it holy for the purpose of the baptism. In, in, the, in the Eucharist, there is, there is natural bread and wine that is infused with the Holy Spirit to make it the body and blood of Christ. So here also, there is the natural elements. There is the wood. There are the animals. There is the materials that were used to make the tabernacle and the altar and the dress of the priests and the people themselves, right? But everything is infused with, with the Holy Spirit. Everything is infused with God's power to make it holy and to make it acceptable to him, right? If you look at all the examples that we read about, let's say, in Kings or in Samuel uh, regarding King Saul, when he tried to make a sacrifice on his own, anytime someone tried to take upon himself the role of the priest, he was struck down, he was rejected, he was condemned, he was struck with leprosy, he was, something horrible happened to him, right? And there's nothing because that person somehow was personally unworthy and somehow all the people who were the priests were like the best ever. No, actually, there were priests that were condemned because of their sinfulness. So it had nothing to do with the, the people themselves. It has nothing to do that one man was righteous and the other person wasn't righteous. It had to do with the, God, the system that God had ordained to only allow certain people to do certain roles, right? And anyone who tried to go beyond the system and to try to take this... Um, role of the priesthood on their own was condemned by God and even though they offered the same thing 
They did the same actions. They had the same censor. They had the same everything. And yet it was rejected by God because it wasn't done the way that God intended. So something important for us to keep in mind and why in the church we're always very careful to offer things in a specific way, right? The just as God has asked for it to be offered. Any questions about this chapter? Chapter 10. We're going to see it from immediately. It's how people start to break these rules. Yes. Well, like with all of that said, can we, like, I could draw a line between what you just said and the Pharisees being legalistic. Because if they go through all these generations of all the details matter and the rituals matter, then I feel like it is very easy to get to lose the spirit of what's happening, right? You're more focused on this, I don't know, this offering and that offering and done this way and this way and you anoint here and there. So how do you maintain that rhythm of like the rights and the details and the specificity that God ordains but also not become legalistic? So one of the issues the Pharisees had is they made up their own rules beyond even what God had said. Like the Pharisees were extra, extra legalistic. Like they came up with new things that God hadn't even asked the people to do and told the people that they had to follow them. That was one. The second is it is very easy whenever you're dealing with a system of rules to, f to, to fall into the pattern of like, okay, just as long as I check every box and I follow every rule, then that means I'm good. Okay. But we know that God judges the heart. So there could be people that, are, are trying their best to offer the boasts that they can. Like the Gentiles, for instance, right? When, 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 when St. Paul was speaking about how God judges the Gentiles, he speaks about the natural law. And he says how God has placed into each one of us this natural law, this moral conscience, and, and that the, those who only have the moral conscience and don't have the law of Moses will be judged according to the natural conscience, right? Speaking about the Gentiles. Um, so so the, the purpose of this is not to be legalistic, but now that the people knew what is it that God wanted, they were called to follow it. If you have a group of people that don't know at all what God is wanting, they do the best that they can with what they believe and what they know, God looks at that and judges them accordingly. But these people now, having received all of this, were expected to follow it, but with understanding. And that was the thing that they didn't have. They didn't have understanding. And part of it is they couldn't they couldn't understand without the grace of the Holy Spirit working in them. Like it, it, it's easy for us looking back to find symbolism things, right? But when you're going through it the first time, you're like, what is the what is the, the the reason why we are offering animal sacrifices? What does animal sacrifice add to God? It doesn't add anything. Like he doesn't benefit from it in any way, right? Doesn't add to him. But looking at it later, now like after having seen the Messiah, right, and what he was and what he represented, you can see that he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world and he sacrificed himself for our sake. So you begin to see, oh, now he is kind of the fulfillment of that whole system of, of sacrifices that was being done from the beginning. Now, it wasn't clear to the people at the time, right? It wasn't clear to the people at the time, but it became clear, should have become clear later, okay? But whenever we do something we should be following the law but also doing it with the right intention again when christ was rebuking the pharisees what were they doing they were tithing the spices like the cumin they were tithing it they were very meticulous in tithing but then he rebuked them and says well but you are neglecting the weightier matters of the law like justice and mercy and you should have been doing both right so they shouldn't we shouldn't pit them against each other because that tends to be what happens. People will say, "Oh, you know what? God doesn't care about all the details. He just cares that we love one another and we have mercy and we're good people and whatnot." No, actually he cares about both. Right? It's not one against the other. It's both together. Right? So I shouldn't feel like just because I'm following the law that I'm righteous, but I shouldn't also feel like just because I can do acts of mercy and goodness and love apart from the law then that means that the law is irrelevant. But then why not take the time, like if he's going to be this detailed now, why not take the time to explain all the symbolism and like the spirit of the law now for them so that at least that gets passed down? Because they wouldn't have understood it. 
Like they wouldn't have understood w because the concept of salvation in a spiritual sense was something beyond their comprehension. That's why they even didn't understand what Sheol was. Like when they, Sheol is Hades. But the idea that when they die, where are they going to go? They didn't die with any kind of hope. They didn't die in believing that there was some kind of good afterlife that they were going to go to because in the mind of the Jewish person, everything was physical, right? That's why they had a hard time believing that God was present with them when they would go to war, for instance, right? They would see all of the, th their enemies would bring their idols of their gods to the war and they would feel like, wow, their gods are present with them in the war, right? So the, the Jews also wanted to have something to represent God to them so they would feel like God is present with us in the war. And then what would they bring? The Ark of the Covenant, which shouldn't have been used for that purpose. The Ark of Covenant was supposed to stay in the tabernacle, and that was it. God never told them, take it around with you to the war, okay? And that's why I actually got captured. And that's why people died, because they tried to prevent it from falling to the ground while it was being carried on a cart. Like, all this stuff happened with the Ark of the Covenant. Um, so, so the people having only a very physical sense of, everything could not have understand this the deeper spiritual meanings behind it they couldn't have understood that the messiah who is the prophet that they are waiting for was going to be crucified that wouldn't have been to them someone of any value you know it's like that's not a that's not a king david figure that's not a powerful figure that's a weak man and that's why the people rejected christ so because they didn't have that spiritual mindset to understand really what is it that christ was going to do what was the messiah was going to do so that's why i really like they, the people didn't even follow this like it's it's not like they follow this without understanding they didn't even follow this so so they were at a level beyond it was beyond their comprehension yeah okay so having that we have now the divine fire okay burning then nadab and abihu the sons of aaron each took his censer and put fire in it put incense on it and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So this is like the first verse after all of that. Okay? And who are the ones who are making the mistake? The priests. Nadab and Abihu. The, the sons of Aaron. So again, Aaron has four sons. These are two of his sons. Okay? There's different um, interpretations for what this divine fire, uh, sorry, profane fire is. Um, a little further down, um, Moses speaks to them specifically about drunkenness and not drinking intoxicating drinks. So some people say it could be that they came to um, offer uh, fire in the censer uh, while they were drunk. That's one interpretation of this. Another interpretation of this profi profane fire is that they used fire that was not from the altar in order to burn the coals that were in the censer. Okay, so again, the fire of the coals was supposed to be from this fire, right? So if they used any other fire other than this, that would be profane fire, like pray for, like, or called all in other translations, it's called strange fire, meaning fire that's not known, fire from another source. Okay, so they did this. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. It's a very dramatic picture like the matrix <laughs> um, remember when we talked about how like uh, God uses like God makes an example of people right like the first time maybe a certain law is violated God makes a big example of it to make it known that no one should do this right here this is the first time we have people violating the laws of the priesthood okay and God made it very, very explicit. No, I will destroy you if you violate the laws of the priesthood. Does that mean that every single person who violated the laws of the priesthood after this, the same thing happened to them? No. But it also doesn't mean that God is excusing it simply because he did not respond immediately the same way. And that's one thing that people misunderstand about the way that God judges. Some people think that God judges, like if God is silent, you know, not doing anything, and like stuff is happening, then that means somehow that's like an implicit approval of what is it that's happening. You know? And some people think that maybe because God responded in this case that somehow the sin of these men is worse than the sin of other people, but that's also not true. God is just using this as an example to make it clear that the laws that he has set forth will be enforced and are important and necessary. And whatever judgment does not come upon a man in his life can come upon him in his death. And it would rather that we know 
how God judges now so we can take action and be careful rather than, you know, we live our whole life in some kind of sin and then only at the end God is like, well, I'm judging you for the sin that you committed your whole life and he's like, oh, I didn't know. Okay, well, they should have known. Actually, God had just told them exactly how is it that they should offer um, the sacrifices and offer the priestly service and here we are at the very beginning. They are violating it. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. You can imagine Aaron, the father of these two, to see God is devouring his sons in this way. It's very difficult. And so when it says Aaron held his peace, I mean, it means like, okay, Aaron is, is trying to contain himself and his emotions for what's, what is it that just happened. Um, because, because essentially God is saying, to tell Aaron um, the reason why that your sons have been devoured by fire is because they offered this profane fire. They, 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 they contradicted the law of God, and they did it knowingly too. Like there wasn't even unknowing. Like we had just finished talking about all the regulations of what is it that they should be doing, so they did it intentionally, okay, for whatever reason we don't know. Then Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brethren from before the sanctuary out of the camp. So who are these men? These are the cousins of Aaron. Okay, The cousins of Aaron are being asked to carry the dead bodies of these two men out of the camp. So they went near and carried them by their tunics out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar his son, so these are the two other sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, do not uncover your heads nor tear your clothes lest you die and wrath come upon all the people. But let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning which the Lord has kindled. You shall no go, not go out from the door of the tabernacle of meeting lest you die for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you and they did according to the word of Moses. Okay, so what is he telling the other priests, the other, the brothers of those who had just died. He told them, do not go out and mourn for what has just happened. Stay in the tabernacle and continue doing your priestly work. Do not go out because the oil, the, the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. Okay. St. Jerome said, it was said to them, do not tear your clothes. Namely, do not grieve like the heathens lest you die for to us sin is death. Now, of course, again, like they would naturally be mourning because of all of this that happened. But God is telling them, your responsibility and priority right now is to do the priestly service and not to go out to mourn like everybody else. Okay? In Leviticus 21, it says, He who is the high priest among his brethren, on whose head the anointing oil was poured, and who is consecrated to wear the garment, shall not uncover his head, nor tear his clothes, nor shall he go near any dead body, nor defile himself for his father or his mother, nor shall he go out of the sanctuary, nor profane the sanctuary of his God, for the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is upon him. I am the Lord. So it, it very explicitly, later on in Leviticus, it pretty much says, those who are the priests, could not even go and handle the, the dead bodies of their own parents, right? Nor would they tear their clothes. Speaking about like the priestly garments, like tearing the clothes is a sign of like mourning and sadness. So they're saying you as the priest are not allowed to do that, not like everybody else. Now this is not to say that they were never allowed to leave the tabernacle. This is just during the time of their service. So this is happening now and God is warning them and saying continue. Continue the service. Do not go and uh, bewail or, or, or mourn for um, those who have um, those who have died. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron saying, do not drink wine or intoxicating drink. You nor your sons with you when you go into the tabernacle of meeting lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that you may distinguish between holy and unholy and between unclean and clean and that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. So this is again um, why some people say that the profane fire could be related to this because he's mentioning this explicitly um, at this time. Um, so uh, anyone who was serving as a priest was not permitted to, to have any alcohol at all during the time of his service. That's why it says do not drink 
wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons with you when you go into the tabernacle of meeting. Okay, and the intoxicating drink is like is like uh, spirits or liquor, like higher alcohol content drinks, um, as compared to wine. So that's what it means when it says intoxicating drink. Okay, um, Saint Jerome said, so that God may keep their minds safe from the idiocy of intoxication and make them understand how to practice their duties in the ministering of God. Also, Origen, he says, God intends for those to whom he is their portion, meaning the priests, to be well balanced, particularly when they stand before the altar to pray to God and are sanctified by his presence. Such commandment, which preserves their strength, the apostle confirms in the law of the new covenant, saying that it is befitting of the priests not to be given to wine, but be sober-minded and self-controlled. If reason is the father of all virtues, intoxication with wine is the mother of all transgressions, which the apostle clearly demonstrated by saying, do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, showing that dissipation is the first fruit of wine. So again, whether it be in the New Testament or the Old Testament, there was a big emphasis on avoiding alcoholic drinks um, because of the effects that it can have. And Moses spoke to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons who were left, take the grain offering. So now, essentially, they're going to continue. Remember, we were still in this process of making these offerings, right, at the very beginning. And so Eleazar and Ithamar are now going to continue where we left off. Um, take the grain offering that remains of the offering made by fire to the Lord and eat it without leaven beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it in a holy place because it is your due and your son's due of the sacrifices made by fire to the Lord, for so I have been commanded. So if you remember, the grain offering was supposed to be eaten in a holy place. Okay, just remember that. The breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering, you shall eat it in a clean place, you, your sons, and your daughters with you, for they are your due and your son's due, which are given from the sacrifices of the peace offerings of the children of Israel. The thigh of the heave offering and the breast of the wave offering they shall bring with the offerings of fat made by fire to offer as a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be yours and your sons with you by statute forever as the Lord has commanded. So this is reviewing, you know, the, the rules of the peace offering. Then Moses made careful inquiry about the goat of the sin offering, and there it was burnt up. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the sons of Aaron, who were left, saying... Okay, what was the problem here? What, wh why was he angry? What did they do? So Moses made careful inquiry, and he realized that Eleazar and Ithamar did not eat of the sin offering, but they burnt it all. Okay, that's what they did. Again, if we go back to Leviticus chapter 6, speaking about the sin offering, it says, Speak to Aaron and to his son, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, the sin offering shall be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten in the court of the tabernacle of meeting. But they burnt it all. So what do you think is going to happen to them? You think they're going to die? Raise your hand if you think they're going to die. One? Two? Okay. We'll see what's going to happen. So he's rebuking them. He says, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in a holy place, since it is most holy, and God has given it to you to bear the guilt of the congregation, to make atonement for them before the Lord? See, it is blood. its blood was not brought inside the holy place. Indeed, you should have eaten it in a holy place as I commanded. And Aaron said to Moses, Look, this day they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and such things have, have befallen me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would it have been accepted in the sight of the Lord? So when Moses heard that, he was content. So what happened? What, what is the reason that they gave? So essentially, Aaron is saying, like, they they have no like they have no desire to eat of anything after seeing his sons killed, and he's saying, like, even if we would have eaten it, 
like like would have been accepted in the sight of the lord like like there's already like like the whole thing has already been defiled by what's happened like there's already disaster that's happened is now the eating of the sin offering or not eating going to make any difference and he's already like you can tell like he's not happy obviously of what just happened right so he's saying he's saying he's saying uh that's why he says and such things have befallen me like we have made the offering and such things have befallen me so he's not in any mood now <laughs> to eat He's not in any mood to eat of the offering. And interestingly, like the response was Moses was content. Like he accepted that answer. He, he, he didn't rebuke him and say no or anything else bad happened to them. So it's kind of like you can see like God is having mercy on him for what just happened. Content with this response. I, I don't know that you can answer this, but will God have reacted like is moses's contentedness matter so moses's contentedness is a reflection of 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 god like when the like the prophet's contentedness means that god is content right it does it's not like his own personal opinion right whatever the prophet is declaring is god's view of things so so yes when it says that he was content it means like God was not, God was okay with it. Like he's not going to, he's not going to do anything. Like, why not start with better example? I don't know. Sorry, but like, why not ordain people that were going <laughs> to do it right the first time? Why go through this whole drama? Well, these are Aaron's sons. But why Aaron? Like, did we ever? talk about why Aaron and his sons well we spoke about why the Levites do you remember why God chose the Levites remember who who were originally the consecrated ones of God the ones who were going to be consecrated to him who were they the firstborns the firstborns were all consecrated why because they were the ones who were redeemed on what day the Passover. They were the ones that were redeemed. They were the ones who were consecrated. And But what happened then is uh, at the base of Mount Sinai when Moses was up receiving the Ten Commandments and everyone was down worshiping the golden idol, when, Mo when, the, when Moses came down, all of the people were doing this and Moses rebuked the people and he, uh, he said essentially like who's going who's gonna to help to purify the people and the Levites were the ones who who did the, the Levites essentially went and helped to um, restore the people to get them to stop what they were doing and whatnot. So at that point, the Levites became like the chosen consecrated people of God. So that's the thing with this is like God chooses people, doesn't necessarily choose only good people. Like he chose Adam and Eve. They were the only people. How does the Levites connect to Aaron and his sons? Because Aaron is a Levite. But wasn't Aaron the one who orchestrating the whole golden calf thing? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Alright. And that was all before this? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because at this point we've already received the Ten Commandments and everything. Okay. Chapter 11. This is the beginning of the third section of the book which is now speaking about everybody's favorite topic, the clean and unclean animals. Okay, There's all kinds of rules about what is clean and what is unclean, and people will debate back and forth, like what makes a food clean and what makes it unclean. And there's a lot of like spiritual meditations on it. I'm going to touch on it just a little bit because there's, there's no end to the spiritual meditations of like what makes... Why did God choose a specific animal to be clean or unclean? And different church fathers say different things. And you could dig into this topic like very deeply. But I'm just going to speak just very little, okay? Mostly it's just going to be going over what the rules are. Because I think to, to, to a large extent, the answer is we don't really know. <laughs> why, why did God choose specific things to be clean and specific things to be unclean? Some of it is related to hygiene and health like maybe animals that were disease carriers that he wanted the people to stay away from. But he didn't say that. He didn't say these animals have disease and whatnot. He spoke to them just in the term of clean and unclean, 
Okay. So it says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, These are the animals which you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Among the animals, whatever divides the hoof, having cloven hooves and chewing the cud, that you may eat. Okay, so there's two requirements here. For for the animals, these are like the 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 large the, 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 the like, yeah from animals. There's other categories like birds and insects and other things, but for the animals, okay. What are the two criteria? Having um, split hooves, okay, and chewing the cud. What is the cud? Yes. So these are animals that regurgitate their food and they chew it again and swallow it again. Like, you know, like a cacao, for instance, has uh, four stomachs, okay? Um, so for an animal to be clean, meaning it has to be able to, to be eaten, it has to have a split hoof. What is a split hoof? Yeah, like two toes of the hoof. Like what's an animal that doesn't have that? A horse. It just has one hoof. It's not split, okay? So they couldn't eat a horse. Okay, but what animals do have split hooves, like goats, for instance, right? They have split hooves. So it's like two toes of the hoof. <coughs> so what is the symbolism? Some symbolism, okay? Um, of the split hooves, St. Jerome, he meditates that the split hooves represent both the Old and New Testament. Um, St. Clement of Alexandria and St. Irenaeus, um, he speaks about the split hoof representing those who walk in truth both in this world and in the next world. Um, St. Irenaeus, he speaks about the split hoof represents those who accept the divinity of both the Father and the Son. Okay. Also, chewing the cud, according to St. Clement, according to St. Irenaeus, St. Jerome, and others, all refers to perpetual meditation on the Word of God. Like someone who is like, um, what, is that, what is that phrase about someone? Ruminating, yes, yes, like they are chewing, chewing the word of God, like meditating on the word of God. Again, these are symbols, okay, meditations. Nevertheless, these you shall not eat among those that chew the cud or those that have cloven hooves. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, so it's, it's, it's giving some examples, okay. The camel has, chews the cud but doesn't have cloven hooves, so it's unclean. The rock hyrax, the hyrax is like this small furry animal. Because it chews the cud, but it does not have cloven hooves. It is unclean to you. The hare, because it chews the cud, but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. The swine, which is a famous one that we know, uh, that, the, that, that defiles uh, the, the, Jews, the Jews. Though it divides the hoof, having cloven hooves, yet does not chew the cud. So the, 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 the pig has cloven hooves, divides the hoof, but it doesn't chew the cud. Their flesh you shall not eat and their carcasses you shall not touch, they are unclean to you. <coughs> this is why when we speak about the parable of the prodigal son, when the son is wanting to eat of the food that the pigs are eating, it was like the lowest of the low you could get, right? Like you're saying that the, the unclean animals are actually like in a better position than you are. These you may eat of all that are in the water. So now we're talking about seafood, okay? Whatever in the water has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat. But all in the seas or in the rivers that do not have fins and scales, all that move in the water or any living thing which is in the water, they are an abomination to you. They shall be an abomination to you. You shall not eat of their flesh, but you shall regard their carcasses as an abomination. Whatever in the water does not have fins or scales, that shall be an abomination to you. Okay? So pretty much fish, right? You can eat fish. Um, Father Tadros Malati, he gives like a meditation on this. He says, what are these fins but the means of grace that support the believer to swim and the waters of the world by the work of the Spirit of God dwelling in him without being swept away by the torrential currents? And what are these scales but these means that protect him and the Lord against any evil opposition? Again, they're meditations, right? Meditations on what it could be. Um, but anything that is from the sea, like for instance, can you eat oysters? You cannot eat oysters. You cannot eat any kind of shellfish, right? Because it doesn't have fins and scales, okay? And these you shall regard as an abomination among the birds. So now 
the category of birds. They shall not be eaten. They are an abomination. So you cannot eat these animals. The eagle, the vulture, the buzzard, the kite, and the falcon after its kind, every raven after its kind, the ostrich, the short-eared owl, the seagull, and the hawk after its kind, the little owl, the fisher owl, and the screech owl, the white owl, the jackdaw, and the carrion vulture, the stork, the heron after its kind, the hoopoe, <laughs> and the bat. <laughs> hey, I'm not sure what that one is. Okay, what is the thing in common among all of these unclean birds? All of them are ones that, number one, they like they swoop down, they kill their prey, or they snatch or feed on dead carcasses. These are all the ones, like kind of a characteristic of all these specific ones that are mentioned here that should not be eaten. So it's kind of like, uh, again, a s the symbol of it, it could be like a warning against being vicious, um, you know, against stealing or, 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 or greed or violence and aggression. Okay, don't eat any of these birds. We know like the kinds of birds, like we're the turtle dove, like this very peaceful bird. We spoke about um, how the turtle dove, as, as one of the animals that God accepts in the offering, what was the characteristic of the turtle dove is that they choose one mate for life, right? All flying insects, so now this is the category of insects, that creep on all fours shall be an abomination to you, yet these you may eat of every flying insect, that creeps on all fours, those which have jointed legs above their feet, with which to leap on the earth. These you may eat, the locust after its kind, the destroying locust after its kind, the cricket after its kind, and the grass grasshopper after its kind. But all the other flying insects which have four feet shall be an abomination to you. So really, the um, all insects are considered unclean except the locusts, the crickets, and the grasshoppers. And, and when it's speaking about the the legs that having the jointed legs it's like these are the insects that have like the rear legs that are longer than the front legs that have three joints like the grasshopper those are allowed to be eaten okay who is a famous person who ate locusts saint john the baptist okay so this was allowed according to these laws of cleanliness by these you shall become unclean so other things to be unclean. Whoever touches the carcass of any of them shall be unclean until evening. So if you touch the carcass of any dead animal, you are unclean until evening. Whoever carries part of a carcass of any of them shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. The carcass of any animal which divides the foot but is not cloven-hoofed or does not chew the cud is unclean to you. Everyone who touches it shall be unclean. So not only by touching those animals, sorry, by eating those animals, you become unclean, but even if you touch the animal, you'll be unclean. And whatever goes on its paws among all kinds of animals that go on all fours, those are unclean to you. Whoever touches any such carcass will be unclean until evening. This would include what? Dogs and cats and rats and monkeys and animals like this. Whoever carries any such carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. It is unclean to you. These also shall be unclean to you among the creeping things that creep on the earth. The mole, the mouse, and the large lizard after its kind, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the sand reptile, the sand lizard, and the chameleon. These are unclean to you among all that creep. So this is like the creeping things are like the reptiles. Whoever touches them when they are dead shall be unclean until evening. Anything on which any of them falls when they are dead shall be unclean, whether it is any item of wood or clothing or skin or sack, whatever item it is in which any work is done, it must be put in water and it shall be unclean until evening then it shall be clean. So it's saying even if any item and one of these one of these animals touches this item, the item itself becomes unclean until it is washed. And again, this could be because of like animals that carry disease. So if some animal carries disease, contaminates something, then you wash the thing that's been contaminated, okay? And you wait until evening and then it's considered clean again. Yes. I'm kind of surprised that serpents aren't on the creeping, unclean creeping things list. <laughs> uh, well, there's more. Okay. <laughs> um, yes, I think there is more coming up. Yes, I believe so. Yeah. But but I think th these are these are examples. Also, because when it says the creeping things that creep on the earth, uh, yeah, there's more than this. Yeah, but it's coming. Can I ask a logistical question? Yeah. 
I've always thought of being unclean as being a bad thing. But wouldn't there need to be someone who goes and clears the camp of all these unclean things? Well, I mean, the idea would be is that if there is such a thing in the camp, just stay away from it. But if you, even if, even if you were the person to touch something that's dead, like so, for instance, if a person dies, you're not supposed to touch the. You would be unclean if you touch the dead body of a person. But obviously, if a person dies, someone has to handle the body. So, sometimes being unclean is a necessity. Yeah. Because the object is unclean. But if if the whole premise of clean and unclean is, is symbolic of sin and sin is something that we're not supposed to touch or handle or, or be defiled with why why have a model that condones being defiled i wouldn't say that it's condoning it but it's it's a necessary part of life that we can't escape just like sin is something that is everywhere like there's no way you can say i'm going to live my life completely separate from sin and i'm not going to be involved in any sin at all Right, the world is corrupted, so there's sin surrounding us everywhere. And the only reason that these dead bodies are dead is because of sin, right? So, so think of these laws of the clean and unclean as a way for God to send the message to the people that there is such a thing as good and there is such a thing as evil. There is such a thing as righteous and unrighteous. There is a such thing as holy and unholy. And as the people of God, we are called to be holy. Now, in the New Testament. This none of this applies anymore, but the concept of holy and unholy applies, right? So he's like teaching the people again in a very physical way that they can comprehend that there is such a thing as an object that is unholy and you shouldn't touch it, and there's another thing that is holy and you can touch it, and there's such a thing as neutral, like and it's not holy or unholy. But we understand that now in the spiritual sense, right? That there are unholy things that defile us spiritually though not physically, right? There isn't a physical defilement in the New Testament. There is a spiritual defilement. So so again, it's, a, it's something that is symbolic of something that is going to be made more clear later. Okay. So now he's speaking about earthen vessels, which are like pots and, you know, pottery, like containers of things. It says, any earthen vessel into which any of them falls, you shall break, and whatever is in it shall be unclean. In such a vessel, any edible food upon which water falls become unclean, and any drink that may be drunk from it becomes unclean. So again, anything that touches this vessel uh, or is put into this vessel that has been touched by something that's unclean is unclean. And everything on which a part of any such carcass falls shall be unclean, whether it is an oven or cooking stove, it shall be broken down, for they are unclean and shall be unclean to you. So again, this could be related to concerns for disease. Nevertheless, a spring or a cistern in which there is plenty of water shall be clean, but whatever touches any such carcass becomes unclean. And if a part of any such carcass falls on any planting seed which is to be sown, it remains clean. But if water is put on the seed, and if any part of any such carcass falls in it, it becomes unclean. Okay, so think about it like this. Disease isn't necessarily going to be contagious if it touches a seed and the seed is planted. It's not like the, it's not like the, the tree or whatever plant comes from the seed is going to become filled with disease if the animal that touched the seed had disease. Um, if there's plenty of water in a, in a spring, that whatever, def you know, whatever animal that's unclean in that water isn't necessarily going to defile the entire spring because if it's running water, right, whatever disease is in there is not going to mean, it's not going to contaminate the whole spring permanently. Um, but if water touches the thing that's unclean, that water becomes unclean. So like if you had a small amount of water that gets something with disease in it, then it's been defiled. And if you drink it or if you touch it, you could get it. But if it's like a spring, which is like a large body of water, especially if it's running water, it's not the same. So even though here, like it's, it's not speaking about disease specifically, but you can get a sense of like, okay, you know, like if you drink water from a river, um, even though it has all kinds of stuff in it, it's not going to be the same as if you drink from a closed, small container that's been has some kind of bacteria in it necessarily, right? It's it's not the same thing. So obviously he's not trying to explain this or, or, or talk about the reasoning behind any of this, but you can see that there is some reasoning um, behind what is being said. 
And if any animal which you may eat dies, he who touches its carcass shall be unclean until evening. He who eats of its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. He who also carries its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. And every creeping thing that creeps on the earth shall be an abomination. This is where we speak now about um, the, the serpent. It shall not be eaten. Whatever crawls on its belly, whatever goes on all fours, or whatever has many feet among all creeping things that creep on the earth, these you shall not eat for their abomination. So the things that have many feet, like millipedes and centipedes and these kinds of animals, the snakes crawl on their belly, um, or whatever goes on all fours but crawls on its belly um, also would be unclean. So I think that could be like lizards and things like that. You shall not make yourselves abominable with any creeping thing that creeps, nor shall you make yourselves unclean with them, lest you be defiled by them. For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth, for I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall, th you there you shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law of the animals and the birds, and every living creature that moves in the waters, and of every creature that creeps on the earth, to distinguish between the unclean and clean, and between the animal that might be eaten and the animal that may not be eaten. Any questions about that? Hi. Um, <laughs> so, uh, in the fourth canticle, we say, like, creeping things and flying birds, praise the Lord. Like, why would that be written if we, if at that time they're considering them unclean? <laughs> I mean, when God created everything, he said it was good. So, it's... It <laughs> Those verses, uh, those verses are talking about how all of creation praises God because all of creation um, like is a testament to God's goodness and power and holiness. Even these animals. So, so like for instance, when he says an eagle, right? An eagle is unclean, but an eagle is very majestic and it's a very beautiful animal, right? Like it's not, it's not saying, it's, what, unclean is not mean that it's morally sinful in some way. It's symbolic of something, but it doesn't mean that the substance itself is sinful. Dogs and cats, like it's it's not that God is is rejecting these specific animals, right? For instance, when God used, uh, let's see, a donkey, right, with Balaam to speak to Balaam, right, to get him to see like what was about to happen. That there was an angel about to kill him. Okay, so you say God used the donkey. A donkey is an un unclean animal, right? Like they couldn't, they couldn't, or could they? The donkey has what? Doesn't have cloven hooves. Yeah, so you couldn't, you couldn't eat it or touch it, right? So it's not to say that somehow God created these animals to be like wicked. It's they're not wicked. They just, when it comes to the use for the children of Israel, God had prevented them from using them. In the New Testament, God, re God, God revealed that these animals were never really sinful all along, right? That's why he told Peter, rise, kill, and eat. So, so the substance itself of the animal is not the problem. God had classified it, just like, for instance, the fruit of the, knowledge, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Was it the case that the fruit itself was sinful? No, it was the sin was the disobedience, right? The, the, the disobedience to eat of that fruit because God had denied them access to that fruit, and then maybe at some point in the future, and many church fathers say that at some point in the future he would have allowed them to eat of it, but not yet. So what caused it to be sin wasn't the substance of the fruit, but it, it was the disobedience. What would cause them to, to be sin in this case is not the animal itself, but it's the act of disobeying God by touching the animal or by eating the animal. The whole goal was to teach them what's holy and unholy. And yes. Um, that got me thinking, how is Christ okay with entering Jerusalem on a donkey, if we're saying that that's an unclean animal? But that's why I was, uh, that's why I'm like rethinking that about the donkey. Because I think the donkey was a common animal that was used. So maybe it, maybe it was considered clean. 
I'll 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 research that. Thank you. Okay. Glory be to God forever. Amen. Can I pray? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask you, God, to give us understanding of your law and to understand, O Lord, its purpose. Why is it that you allow us certain things and you deny us other things? We thank you, O God, because of your goodness, and we trust, O Lord, that whatever you allow in our lives is good for us. Help us, O Lord, to be patient and to wait upon you, O Lord, to provide all good things to your people. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the communion and the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace, the peace of the Lord. Lord be with you all. Amen.